Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with Keith Epps and Genevieve Kosky. And our friend Noel Murray is also back in Tasha Robinson's seat. Hello, Noel. Hello. On last week's show, we talked about Terry Zweigoff's 1994 documentary, Crumb, and the uncomfortable phenomenon of a dark-minded artist who became a celebrity without expecting it. This week, we're doing likewise with Roadrunner, Morgan Neville's new documentary about Anthony Bourdain, the chef-turned-author-turned-TV personality who took his own life three years ago. As a chef, Bourdain took a fairly conventional route, attending the Culinary Institute of America, and working his way through various restaurant kitchens in Provincetown, Massachusetts, and New York City. In the late 90s, he became the executive chef at a French bistro named Les Halles. Meanwhile, he did a little bit of writing on the side, including a couple of culinary mystery novels that didn't take off. But he had a robust prose style, and that style, combined with his knowledge of how restaurants really work, led to Kitchen Confidential, his brilliant 2000 memoir. From there, Bourdain started appearing on TV, most notably in the Food Network series A Cook's Tour, which sent him around the world to try various local delicacies, not all of them appetizing. Beyond Kitchen Confidential, however, Bourdain's public image was probably best defined by series like No Reservations and Parts Unknown, which were about food, but were also serious and opinionated documentaries that put that food in a broader cultural context. He was the opposite of an ugly American, humble, respectful, endlessly curious. But Bourdain had a dark side too, marked by addictive tendencies, narcissism, and a never-ending series of broken relationships. Roadrunner considers the man in full. And so will we, after the break. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. It was almost never about food. It was about Tony learning how to be a better person. When he threw himself into something, he threw himself completely. Why am I here? Am I insane? 
Dude was like, life's about finding a cliff worth jumping off. I'm gonna look for something feral and wild. He was a traditional romantic. Reality was never gonna live up to exactly how he pictured it. Hey, what's up, man? He was always rushing to get into the scene. He was rushing to get out of the scene, to go somewhere next, even if he had nowhere to go. He was definitely searching for something. You were successful, and I am successful. And I'm wondering, are you happy? I know how hard it must have been for him to reach out to someone and be like, hey, man, I'm not doing well. Nothing feels better than going home. And nothing feels better than leaving home. The bittersweet curse. Travel isn't always pretty. You go away. You learn. You get scarred, marked, changed in the process. You inspire so many people with the show. You have a good karma. Good karma? I think so. Well. <laughs> so standard first question, uh, what did everyone think of Roadrunner? Noel, what did you think of it? It was very interesting to me. Um, I, I didn't know quite what to expect going into it, given that the filmmaker is uh, Morgan Neville who's made several films that I've liked and has done, I guess, what you would call celebrity profiles documentaries before. Most famously, you know, the Mr. Rogers documentary he did a couple of years ago. So, you know, he clearly has knows how to tell a good story, which is, I think, an underrated skill in documentary filmmaking. But I personally have kind of, uh, and we can get to this more a little later on, I've always had kind of uh, complicated reactions to Anthony Bourdain. I read Kitchen Confidential and loved it. I enjoyed many of his travel shows, but he had a public persona that, you know, sometimes rubbed me the wrong way. And I think that this film tries to grapple with that in ways that are not always entirely satisfying. Yeah, I'll, I'll confess that Anthony Ordain is something of a, as ubiquitous as he was in the culture, something of a blind spot for me. I'd never read Kitchen Confidential. Um, my wife didn't loved it, but I, I never got to it. I never really watched any of it. I, I didn't watch any of his shows. I think early on, I decided that you know it's a show where someone eats a cobra's beating heart, and uh, like you know Fear Factor, but with travel uh, in it. And I'm like, yeah, that's not for me. Now I, re I recognize that he picked up a lot of acclaim after that, but I, I never really tuned in. And also, his persona, I felt this being burned away over the course of the movie. But my sense was there's a lot of tough guy posture. And it was kind of a pose. And I, I did not get the sense of, for whatever flaws this movie has, I, I did get a, a sense of that, a, a fuller picture of the of who he was as a person by the end of the movie. And it wasn't my, it doesn't really square with my preconceptions. But as for the movie itself, I'm grappling with it too. You know, I, I actually think not having that context, it's not the best introduction to the wider world, Anthony Bourdain. It, it doesn't provide a lot of setup. You're just kind of dropped into the kitchen confidential world. And, and so much of it is sort of outtakes and behind the scenes discussion from the producers of his show that if you're not familiar with e either of those aspects of him, uh, you can feel a little adrift uh, in terms of the project itself. Yeah, I think I found this one ultimately 
pretty unsatisfying. And I say that as someone who I think is a little more uh, familiar uh, with Bourdain and and generally liked him, uh, you know, uh, while recognizing that his persona could be grating. Like, well, I shouldn't claim to be a or Bourdain expert or anything. I kind of, no reservations was the last time I like followed his show uh, somewhat regularly. I never really kept up with parts unknown. But, you know, I feel like I had a pretty good grasp on who Anthony Bourdain was over the last like two decades or so of his life. And I feel like the first two thirds of this film didn't really give me a whole lot new to chew on there. Pardon the pun. I, I think that's gonna that's gonna keep happening. There's just so many <laughs> easy food food uh, turns of phrase. But the first two thirds of this felt just very sort of like you know biographical. A lot of rehashing of his shows, of his words, which is another little ethical thing that we can <laughs> get into uh, in, in in a bit. But then the final act of this movie grappling with his suicide and the you know the time leading up to it and the relationships leading up to it i feel like attempts to force a narrative onto this film that it is not really equipped to handle or and raises questions that it's not really equipped to answer and it gets i think pretty ugly <laughs> in its in its last act and what comes before it, I don't think is strong or illuminating enough to kind of make up for the failures of that final half. This is glib, and I don't necessarily mean this as a, as a put down, but like the first two thirds of this movie feel like like a CNN special, you know, it feels like something that would have aired in the months after his death on CNN is sort of a, a remembrance, you know. Um, but then once it gets into sort of grappling with his his final days, it becomes something else. And I don't think what it becomes is successful. Huh. Well, <laughs> I, I, I have to say, I, I have a much more charitable assessment of both the man and, and the film. I'm a loved Anthony Bourdain on pretty much unreservedly. I, I, I did, I, you know, <laughs> Kitchen Confidential was a book I I loved. I, I I reviewed a cook's tour and one of his novels for the AV Club. I would cherish his appearances on Top Chef when he did that. He was always had had a wonderful kind of caustic wit, but also you know a real appreciation for food. And I always considered him to be you know America's best export, like just such a model of how we should be understanding other other cultures of being open to other cultures of being humble respectful i mean in a lot of it you know i mean you can kind of look at like oh he's eating cobra hearts or something like that i don't think he saw that as a fear factor thing to do i think he saw it as like this is what people eat and i need to kind of be familiar with that you know and it may maybe it makes for good television and i think that he kind of found his voice and the film gets into that you know it shows like no reservations and parts unknown very very different from a cook's tour but I think there was this spirit of adventure that was also married to a complexity and, a, and an openness to the world that was quite extraordinary. And when he died, it, it hit me really hard because it was like, here was our, this ambassador. Here is somebody who, who saw the world for what it was, or at least attempted to see the world for what it was. And maybe that was what, and it was like a canary in the coal mine or something. He was like the dead canary. It, that was kind of my impression watching the film. Of course, it feels like his suicide is much more connected 
to the last in a series of addictions, I guess, that the film sets up. But I, I think the film is a little bit more it's, it's conventional, to, but not as conventional as other Morgan Neville films. I think it is trying as much as it can to allow Bourdain's voice to guide it along, you know, even though obviously there's plenty of people that get interviewed for it. And uh, and I think that it ends on a balanced and complex and, and a portrait of the man is that, uh, of contradictions. I think it captures it's a hard job. I mean, and it's not a, it's imperfect, but I think that I did take away some substantial things from it and uh, feel like it's on balance a, a pretty good film. I want to uh, back up a little, and uh, <laughs> I, I was, I was perhaps uh, maybe came off a, a little harsher uh, than I than, than I intended because I do have some pretty uh, strong issues with how the the film wraps up. But what I do admire about the film leading up to it is how it creates this sort of very natural flow or arc to Bourdain's career and kind of reflects how just like one interest led to the next and it kind of like changed his persona. Like it remained the same, but it also evolved throughout these different points in in his career and he evolved. So I think like in terms of creating a dynamic portrait of him, it's pretty successful. Where I think it stumbles is where it kind of dips its toe into the like pathology behind it. And, you know, it kind of frames his obsessions as a kind of mania. It kind of dips its toe into his feelings about therapy and not receiving it and all of that kind of coming to a head in his suicide and his involvement with the Me Too movement and the way that people in this film talk about that, I think kind of turned, you know, something that was a positive aspect of this film. It kind of curdled in the end there for me. Yeah, I like the film overall, but I do think, I do think the most successful parts of it are when the producers are talking about the early days of doing a cook's tour and how, you know, they thought, well, here's this person who's got this great personality. He's got this wonderful voice. We're going to send them around the world. We're going to have cameras on them. It's going to be great. And then they realized after the first couple of days of shooting that Anthony Bourdain, you know, out in the world is basically just trying to process all this stuff that he's saying and didn't necessarily want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I found that like a really interesting insight to kind of think about, you know, kind of the torture in a way that he went through when he became famous um, that, you know, he liked being able to kind of share his voice with the world. He didn't like that. Then they, the world wanted to come hang around with him, you know, and, and, and listen to him constantly talk. Cause that's really apparently not who he was. He was somebody who, you know, like, like a lot of writers, you know, he, he's internal or at least he used to be. And I thought that insight as well in the film, as, as you mentioned, Genevieve, is very strong that, that over time, he actually just kind of shifted personas to kind of fit the person he was being asked to be. Um, and I thought those insights were all very strong and, and I think much more, you know, resonant with me than the stuff in the final third. I didn't envy Neville the choices that he had to make. And I guess this is, we'll probably get into this in a little bit when you talk about some of the ethical issues that people had with the film, but trying to wrestle this big a personality with this many relationships, this many contradictions that is unknowable in certain respects. He's not around to, to give us an impression of who he was. I mean, it's, it's just a huge challenge that maybe no film could master. This film doesn't. And I, th I think you're right, Noel, about maybe the strongest 
section of the film and the one that most just surprised me the most because i've only known him as someone who can speak with ease and with a certain frankness about what he was seeing you know with with a lot of passion about what he was seeing you know i had no idea that he had never really traveled (laughs) before (laughs) that was shocking to me (laughs) and i'm also shocked to learn that he had a certain amount of shyness at first in front of the camera because that's also not how i knew him to be i knew him to be the the you know the biggest most interesting most opinionated voice in the room and uh, i think he kind of came into that and maybe not comfortably maybe there was always this discomfort that he had being a celebrity being out out in front of the camera that kind of pressure that kind of scrutiny was nothing that a a personality such as his could really uh, handle Yeah, you can really feel throughout the film, particularly in the early scenes after Kitchen Confidential is released and he's like, you know, getting his first taste of fame, that he he really relishes the idea of himself as a misfit, you know, and he he identifies with all the these these writers who are kind of like social misfits in in one way or the other. And that's definitely like a kind of a perception of himself that he holds. And, you know, I I guess kind of similar to Crumb uh, is one that is not really compatible with a celebrity or any sort of comfort with celebrity. And it seems like he did get a little more comfortable with the celebrity aspect and with himself as he got older. But he did always kind of hang on to this idea of himself as an outsider and misunderstood, despite what the what was actually happening in his life at the time. And I think the, the movie uh, kind of returns to that uh, perception, that self-perception uh, uh, again and again in a way that I think is interesting. I guess we should dip in a little bit to the controversies that have kind of swirled around this uh, movie, two in particular. So maybe we'll knock them out one by one. Mm-hmm. Uh, controversy number one <laughs> was, came out in an interview with Neville where he talked about there's a scene where we're hearing him read a voicemail exchange outline. We're hearing his voice. And then, of course, we learned that in this interview that the voice was sort of modified, you know, deep faked, right? There was, there was technology that was used to recreate his voice. So, you know, for the purposes of this movie, uh, basically, and, and uh, uh, some felt that that was not great. <laughs> um, I, I have my, I have a fairly strong opinion on it, but I kind of wanted to, to hear what everyone else thought of that particular decision on Neville's part. It feels like an avoidable error to me, and and I I, I th- don't think perhaps they considered how uh, upsetting this choice might be to people when they found out, however minor it might be in the film itself. You know, I, I guess there's sort of an expectation that people watching it might make the assumption that this is somehow a recreation, given that it is a private email correspondence that is being simulated. But the recipient, David Cho, the artist, begins reading it. And I don't see where in that case where that's a less effective choice than than cutting to the deep faked voice. But I, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not, not sure this. there are other issues with this film. I, I think we'll mm-hmm. get into those next. I have two points to make on this. One, I'm assuming you all agree with this. That if we had not read that interview with Morgan Neville, where he copped to the fact that he had recreated the voice, we would not have known. I would have asked where that that came, the recording came from. I think if I had thought about it for a second, I would have said, wait a minute. But watching it in the film, it goes by so quickly Mm -hmm. that I doubt I would have, it would have even occurred to me to think, well, wait a minute, this was an email. Why am I hearing his voice? 
Yeah, I actually made a point before seeing it to not find out where the deep fake happened in the film. And it blew right by me at the time, like while I was watching. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't excuse it. I'm just saying that it's something that, I th- and Scott, I know you have an opinion you're going you're to say about this. Much the same, which is that it is so minor that we wouldn't notice it if he hadn't been brought up. But I do want to say that it's interesting to think about this and think about Morgan Neville's comment, his kind of glib comment about how we can convene a panel on documentary ethics, um, you know, about this. Given that there's a portion of the film where they indicate that one of the signs of um, Anthony Bourdain weakening in his, uh, his, later, his later days is him recreating uh, interviews. When he's doing interviews with people mm-hmm. and they're talking, he stops and then changes the camera angle and starts over again mm-hmm. and loses that naturalism. And they use that kind of as a criticism of how he changed in his later days. And so, and, and the criticism is that he's not being natural anymore, that he's recreating things. I think Neville wasn't expecting the documentary ethics panel to be quite as big as it's turned out <laughs> become. <laughs> yes, everyone on the internet yelling. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that scene, too, though I guess I had a different read on it than you, Noel. I mean, first of all, I, I don't think this is a big deal at all and was bracing myself for it. And I, it happened and I was in my thought was like, this is kind of the film equivalent of polishing a quote in a long feature. This is the high tech version of that. And this is a film that is trying as best it can to allow a Bourdain's voice to take it places to determine where it's going to go. And, um, and this felt to me like a very minor fussy thing that people are accepting more things <laughs> from documentaries that maybe they should, that maybe they haven't seen enough of them because a lot of documentaries do a lot of dodgier things than this. This felt like a very small thing. And it, it felt certainly much smaller than recreating this, having to go back and recreate this, you know, emotional moment. That's a really interesting scene, Noel, and I and I'm, I'm I'm kind of been wrestling with it because it seems just like a terrible thing to have to do. To, I mean, because that scene, but the person who's talking to him in that scene is extremely emotional. It's not you know to try to to move the camera around and try to recreate that moment again. I mean, that's almost like when you lose an interview, <laughs> yeah, you know, like when you forget to record an interview and you have to go back and ask the same yeah, questions. Sure. It's just <laughs> it's just the worst possible feeling in the world, and, and yeah. you can't get that magic again it's but, basically a broadcast news moment you know let's yeah. just you know yeah and it is so a, but the broadcast i mean there's something there's a very but broadcast news of course you know the lapse there is like they had a single camera recording this interview and he in william hurt's character got emotional during the interview and then filmed himself later getting emotional. I mean, that's, that's, that's a horrible taste. I, I think it's a, <laughs> that's much worse than what we get here. I would, I would, but real quick, I want to urge people if they, um, if they haven't already to read, uh, our friend Sam Adams did a piece in slate recently where he talked with various documentary filmmakers, including AJ Schnack and, and yep. Robert Green, two really great filmmakers about their opinion about this about the audio manipulation, I do wish that they had asked him about that scene. Because <laughs> I think Robert Greene might have had something fascinating to say about the idea of staging emotional moments, because he does that a lot in his films, but does so in a way that where the artificiality is forwarded. Yes. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a big thing with him. I mean, that, right. and that's the thing with all these true-false documentaries. It's like, they're upfront about... <laughs> the artifice part you know that that that, that part is, is something that we as as audience members are engaged with it's not somebody trying to get away with something which is kind of what neville does here it's like it's a small crime but it is a crime i guess that he, he doesn't want us to pick up on the fact that this didn't happen he just wants to kind of like have it happen and and nobody say a thing about it which again 
happens a lot in documentaries and, and sometimes that doesn't get noticed. The bigger controversy, I think, uh, Genevieve, did you have any? I'm sorry, did, oh. I didn't ask you about this. No, I think I'm pretty much on the same page as you guys. I, I like Keith referring to it as an as an unforced error because you know if uh, if we're convening the the documentary ethics panel, I don't really have a strong issue with this approach being taken, while at the same time feeling it was not necessary to do here, or at least not necessary to do in such a passing way. I guess you could also look at it as a as a missed opportunity to kind of engage with the whole idea of Bourdain's voice as opposed to his, you know, interiority and, you know, what was as having such a expansive record of his voice and uh, you know, there's scenes of him doing voiceover and struggling with it. Like I think if Neville had chose to kind of engage with it beyond just a as a sort of a, a filmmaking tool it could be interesting but as is it just feels like a bit of a cheat and i think that's maybe kind of being compounded by people's overall discomfort with uh deep fake technology uh yeah. in general yeah i mean it's it's kind of an innocuous tweak using a technology that could that is absolutely sinister in its right. implications <laughs> yes. uh so i mean i don't think i mean using an artificial version of his voice to read something he that he actually had written I mean, that seems like a small crime, but of course, yes, it's a slippery slope. The bigger controversy, I think, and one, one I think that's a little bit more worth talking about here is that Neville opted not to interview or try to interview Ozzy Argento, who is a big part of the end of, of the film and the end of Bourdain's life and who upended the show. I mean, there was a lot of, you know, it explained his, his involvement, her involvement in the Me Too movement brought him into that. I mean, she's a major, major part of his life and very conspicuously absent here. What did you make of that decision to not bring her aboard or to not even ask? I mean, I, presumably she should, she would have said no, but yeah. should he have asked? Is there a defense for him not asking? I mean, I think I could see not having her in this film being okay. I think what makes it not okay is the extent to which everyone who is in this film is vilifying her in what we see. Like that whole disastrous final shoot is kind of like laid at her feet, you know, as, as being at fault. She's kind of blamed for, you know, breaking up the gang in, in a lot of ways, you know, and that's even before the, uh, the infidelity comes into the mix. And for what it's worth, like her, you know, defense is basically that they had an open relationship, which I could definitely see being true. I think that you could acknowledge her position without having her actually speak in the film. So it's more the extent to which she has made a character without her own voice being present in the film at all. And this is minor and is not being talked about nearly as much, but I think my issues with her not being in the film are compounded by the fact that Bourdain's first wife is also not in the mm -hmm. film at all, uh, who was with him for for 20 years as he became famous, was, was with him through all of his drug addicted <laughs> years, you know, like that's another huge character in his narrative that is, you know, talked about in relation to him, but is not really seen in the film. And maybe she didn't want to participate. That's entirely possible. But I think like if you're going to craft a narrative that is really dependent on this woman slash slash these women, you need to at least acknowledge their point of view, not just how, what other people have to say about them. 
So I think the defense that Neville has offered is possibly the best defense, which is it's too big a story to cover in this film. And without going into the sort of details, which were easily found, there's more to the story with Argento and Bourdain and Argento, particularly Argento's own public controversies mm -hmm. that are go unmentioned in the film and which are not outside the scope of the story necessarily, but I guess the best defense is it, it could have been worse. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, they could have gotten into more stuff. Uh, at the same time, if you are going, she is, as you said, essentially made the villain of the piece and uh, to have that voice absent and, and not reached out to at all is it's a choice, yeah. <laughs> you know, because there is kind of a pile on. I mean, that, that's the thing that's kind of distasteful. Mm -hmm. I mean, it'd be one thing if there was like one person commenting and saying, and then he met Asia and he drifted away from us. But it was like one person after another. It's like four or five different people who all. And it goes on and on thing. and on. Like mm -hmm. yeah. the Hong Kong shoot feels like it's like a 20 minute section of the film. I know it's not, but if it is, yeah. they do get into a lot of details there. Yeah, see, I don't, I, I guess I didn't see her as made out to be a no. villain here. Um, no, definitely she is. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're saying that, but I'm not, I, but what I'm saying is that Bourdain was responsible for a lot of choices here that, you know, I mean, he was responsible for getting rid of his, you know, longtime cameraman. He was responsible for being a suffocating partner with no level of no self-awareness you know i think that the film lays a lot of blame on his flaws and his misunderstandings of what their relationship was and he is to blame I mean, it's his show <laughs> you know he is to blame for messing up the show it's not it's his fault it's not her fault and then as far as uh, you know her presence in the film i think i think right uh, ne neville's defense of it is probably the correct one in terms of like when you think about what that would mean it would be such a massive can of worms. I mean, the film's already too long. <laughs> but it, but it, it, it opened that can of worms. Yeah. That, that, that's the thing. It's 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 would like you, it opens right. the can of worms and be like, oops, I can't open this can anymore. It might get out of hand, you know? <laughs> but then what do you, but you're going to get, what do you, I don't know. You're going to get a lot of weight put on one part of his life when the film is trying to step back and give you a full picture of this man over decades and i think if you get caught up on this one story which could in, in itself be a movie it throws the film way off balance that's again my, yeah. my defense but it's i don't know i think it's just a problem i think it's just a really hard would have been really hard to make a good film out of, the, out yeah. of what he had here i mean it already uh, but, is but out I, of balance though that's that's like you're gonna be saying it already is out of balance i mean it already is a lot of that and yes yeah. if they brought her in then you would have had it would not have been an easy interview and any answers that she gave would have like you know opened up more questions and, and it would have been unsatisfying no matter what. But I think you still got to make that play. I will say, I will say this. I, I, one thing I found kind of fascinating about all the people who worked with him from the beginning of the TV days and their comments there at the end is that there is kind of interesting sort of sub theme there intentionally or not that everybody had their Anthony Bourdain. Like everybody had their idea of what he, of when he was at his best. And I think one thing the film, you know, explores maybe not as openly as it should um, is that everybody else's idea of, of who the best Anthony Bourdain was wasn't necessarily the one that made him the happiest. You know, he really struggled with that, apparently, that when he got this certain level of success where he could, you know, be on CNN and be winning awards, that's when he's sending emails to people saying, okay, you, I have everything, you have everything, are you happy? Because I'm not happy. 
Um, and then, and then there's that moment in, the, in, you know, in Hong Kong where he's on the boat with Christopher Doyle, you know, and he says out loud, I think I'm actually happy. Like, like he can't believe this moment is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's the moment that everybody else, you know, who's being interviewed in the film says, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Hong Kong was, was the worst. <laughs> Hong Kong was a nightmare. So, you yeah. know what I mean? It's like, it's like, you know, I, I, and I think that that idea is in the film, but I really wish that he had kind of explored more this idea that what his friends thought was the best Anthony Bourdain may not have been the one that he was happy being. Yeah. I mean, he wanted to be Wong Kar Wai. This was his chance to be in Hong Kong and have Christopher Doyle direct a film. And, you know, uh, Arze Argento was obviously a major, you know, a- actress with a, with a director that people know uh, quite well uh, as a, for a father. You could see that. And, and I think he also felt, I mean, he clearly felt very um, uncomfortable with the way his work, the way the work was packaged for TV. I mean, that was always, uh, you know, a discomforting thing. That sounds familiar. Sounds like someone else we know. Yes, it is. Thank <laughs> you. I, that was a, the transition I was looking for because I, I think the discomfort of uh, Anthony Bourdain and R. Crumb is a lot in common between those two. And uh, so we'll talk about that uh, and the connections between Crumb and Roadrunner after the break. In the beginning, it was just Chris and Lydia shooting with him. They did that for several years and then brought in a whole team of people, many of them who stuck around to the end. This is for you. (laughs) You might need this later. Oh, I will. It was pretty much the most formative years of my life. There will be blood. There were these battling sort of teams on the show. Diane. Zach introduced a little something called the lens change. I think Tony liked me for a couple reasons. One was that, you know, I enjoyed being with Tony, you know. I mean, it was, I had to be all sort of with them in our own ways. You know, it was very competitive, and so the bar got pushed every single episode. Tony was in on everything. Every show was something that was important. Every show had his care in it. Every show potentially had his wrath. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. Uh, And one thing just to carry over from the discussion we just had, Genevieve, has to do with the people who were not a part of this film. Uh, Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I I think we we kind of covered it in relation to Roadrunner as far as uh, Asia Argento and Bourdain's first wife, whose name I am going to say it was Nancy, Nancy Polkowski. Oh. Not that dissimilar from my last name. Um, <laughs> so we we already talked about sort of their absence in Roadrunner, and I think Argento's absence is a, a much bigger deal uh, for, uh, than Nancy's. Uh, but also, still, Nancy not being in it, I think, does kind of maybe leave out a key part of the Anthony Bourdain story uh, that the film just you know kind of glosses over. In Crumb, you know, we're kind of given a a note at the very end that his sisters, his two sisters did not participate. So we we talked about a little bit in the first half about why one of the sisters wasn't in it. I don't know if we know why they both weren't in it. I'd I'd be curious if anyone does know. But I think just personally speaking, I think for a film that is called crumb and is in many uh, respects more about the family crumb than one crumb in particular uh, it is it is notable that we are missing two key female members of the group we do get to spend some time with uh with their mom but you know especially in a 
movie about a, a man or men who had, you know, very troubled uh, re- relationships with women. I think it would have been very interesting to hear a little more about the women they grew up alongside. But they're barely mentioned too. They're not really yeah. part of of the, the yeah, if, mar- if, marginal players in the in the, in the brothers' stories. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have even known about them if there hadn't been like a picture of of the five kids like early on in the film. And I remember thinking at that point, like, oh, he has sisters. I wonder if we're going to hear from them. And then we didn't. But it would have been really easy, I think, to not even think about them without that. Yeah, Crumb certainly gives you the impression that the three brothers were operating separate from their sisters, right? I mean, like, were their sisters involved? They didn't seem if they were involved in their fantasy. Well, they were. They were the. They were the uh, treasurer. I think they were the treasurer and secretary of the club, right? Okay. The the the, the sibling, the comics club, that Charles made them all do. Um, <laughs> so yeah, they they were brought up there. So they were clearly somewhat involved. I mean, who knows to what extent or for how long, but. They would surely have stories to tell. Yeah. If nothing uh, else about the parents, about the mom and dad, who we, we hear about quite a bit from the, the three boys. So, Was anything said from Neville about the first wife? Did he Was that an attempted and declined? I don't think that's any... I've never heard any... any Because that is... I mean, that, that would yeah. be... I mean, somebody who knows him that well, you know, and, and he left her as his, he, his career was taking off, right? I mean, that, that's kind of conspicuous. Yeah as well um just kind of you know starting a pattern where he kind of gets interested in one thing and then when he loses interest when he gets loses interest in it and does the other thing and whatever he lost interest in whether it be you know it could be a wife or it could be a a kid (laughs) you know they get left to the an old friend they all get sort of left in the past you know never to be visited yeah i'm uh i'm not seeing any interviews with him talking about her not being in the film. And like, I think if he were asked about it, I think that, you know, he would say something similar to what he said about about Argento. Like, it's too much for, you know, this film. Because I mean, like, the film does not really get into his time as a drug addict very much. It's it's covered pretty thoroughly in the, the book, I think, in, in, in Kitchen Confidential. So I think it, uh, the film kind of gives itself permission to just kind of you know, uh, skip lightly over that part of his personal history and, and pick up with him at the, you know, as his star was ascending. But as you note, Scott, while I can understand not wanting to get into that part of his life too deeply, I think not talking about the divorce in the context of his rising celebrity is a missed opportunity on the film's part. You know, one thing that I'm, I'm kind of thinking about now, and, and you know, I, I hasten to say that I, I think documentaries and journalism are two different things and shouldn't always be thought about in the same way. Uh, a documentary is not equivalent to a piece of journalism. Um, I mean, there are, there are similarities to it, but, but uh, they, they kind of operate on different rules, uh, different sets of, of uh, unwritten rules and sometimes written rules. Uh, but I will say that Roadrunner, the people that are, are assembled do seem to be people who are there to reinforce Neville's take on, on Bourdain, his preferred take. Yep. <laughs> and, 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 and I think, but that's, that's something that if you're a journalist is a common, understandable, but nonetheless dubious pitfall of the profession, you know, cause you know, you, if you pitch a feature to a, an editor, you've got the thesis of, in mind for that feature, right? Uh, oftentimes you have the fe- thesis in mind. And so your, your questions, you, the writing of the piece 
it it all is going to be it's hard to knock you off that track it's hard to get the you know and sometimes there are going to be people that you are going to talk to who are going to knock you way way off that track maybe that's a big problem with roadrunner <laughs> and maybe it's a it's a problem with crumb I, I don't know maybe less so i think i think crumb's approach is is what is much more is much different and less comparable but um the, what i guess what i'm saying is it's more than just a can of worms it's also disruptive to a narrative that might be a little pre-cooked yeah another connection that i think really bonds these two men as subjects is the notion of celebrity or accidental celebrity. That was kind of like the really big piece of connective tissue that made me think about Crumb when uh, this Bourdain film came out. Yeah, um, you know, I mentioned I mentioned at the beginning that you know I have complicated feelings about Bourdain, and a lot of it has to do with with just this. I mean. Um, I actually wrote an essay for the AV Club after No Reservations ended before Parts Unknown started. He was like a guest host on some stupid celebrity cooking competition show or something, you know, on ABC called The Taste or something. It was really bad. And I kind of wrote this essay about how, you know, what the hell happened to Anthony Bourdain. And part of it was is that he built his persona on the idea of making fun of the Emerald Legacies of the world. Mm-hmm. And then gradually, the more he found himself being on television, the more he found that he actually had to, that it was not easy to be Emerald Lagasse, that he developed a sort of generosity toward these people that before he made fun of. And I found that very humanizing and I liked it, but also it kind of, you know, softened his edge to some extent. And it kind of made me question what I liked about his work early on, given that, you know, he quickly realized that there, that it's, it's hard to be a travel TV host, as he kind of disdainfully calls it on in, in, in Roadrunner. So I think, you know, when you compare him to Crumb, I think the difference is that Crumb is able to maintain that disdain and that remove from that world by just rejecting it, by just refusing to sell his work to the movies after Fritz the Cat and refusing to, you know, work with, with sleazy Hollywood producers or with, you know, he just did his thing and sold his stuff to whoever wanted to buy it. And Bourdain, I think, you know, was more you know, part of the world and kind of had to deal with how that made him feel. And uh, I think it's an interesting aspect of him. I think the film does a good job of showing how it affected his, his mindset. Um, and I will say, you know, after that, after that AV club essay that I think that his final work was really amazing. And I think that, mm-hmm. um, you know, he reclaimed a lot of what I, what I loved about him early on. I think there's an issue of scale when we talk about the fame of, of these people too. I mean, Crumb is comic book famous, which is to say not not actually famous. Whereas <laughs> Bourdain could not walk down the street without getting recognized. And I think also just in terms of their professions, Crumb is as you know is is in the public eye as he wants to be. Not very much at all anymore. I think he just kind of is over in France uh, doing comics, best I can tell. And Bourdain, by nature, was a was a public figure and 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 was a was a face uh, on on the television. So, but I think I think Scott's right though. Their re- reactions, their temperaments, and their reactions to it are much the same. I think Crumb had the choice of of retreating from from the the smaller amount of fame he had, and Bourdain did not have that choice, except by you know turning orgorophobic because he apparently did toward the end. Well, I mean, I think he was both also quite attracted to the attention mm. yeah. and attracted to f- to fame and wanted to be that guy and also kind of 
repulsed at the same time. I mean, he had a ambiv- very powerfully ambivalent feelings, I think, about being on television. And one thing that television does to a person is it turns you into a TV character, <laughs> you know, like Anthony Bourdain loses some of his authentic self in order to be the Anthony Bourdain character that you bring on to Top Chef to talk about, you know, how, how something tastes like a old shoe or something. Um, <laughs> and I think that he's he's enough. He's aware of it enough to be repulsed and self-loathing, to have some repulsion, self-loathing about the type of person he's become and it, and it changed him. It did, you know, as you say, his, his later work felt more fully his own and more authentic. And, you know, we could see in this documentary and in, in, in Roadrunner that Hong Kong stuff, I mean, that he felt great doing that. He felt like a real artist, you know, he was making movies, you know, making, you know, he was, he was a, a real connoisseur of good stuff, you know, of good music and good film. And I think wanted to see himself as somebody who was, who could do that stuff, you know, who could be at that kind of work at that kind of level of artistry and not somebody who's going to be kind of fit into a package for CNN or for food network. So uh, it's interesting. I mean, and, and obviously the, the level of celebrity does matter, but I think, they, I mean, they both had a certain, they had, but I think they both had some integrity, but Chrome is the more uncompromising of the two without question. Before we leave this uh, topic, I want to return again to the scene I brought up in the first half in Crumb with at the art gallery where everyone mm. is uh, mm. talking about how great Crumb is and how mm. how how pleased he seems. Um, and if I'm, I think I've made pretty clear that I'm not really a huge fan of of uh, Crumb as a person or how he uh, approaches the world. But if I were to be generous, if I were to be more generous to him than he would ever be to anyone <laughs> else mm-hmm. in the world. Um, I'd say that he is, you know, happy and pleased in that moment because people are talking about his work. Uh, you know, they are they are engaging with his art, uh, you know, and by extension, him as an artist, but they are, you know, not necessarily, well, I, I think they are still engaging with him as a, as a quote unquote character, you know, like, I mean, he, Crumb definitely has a persona and people, you know, have feelings about that persona. But I don't know, I, I guess I have complicated feelings, ver- you know, verging into negative about that scene. So I'm curious how uh, any of you feel about it in relation to Crumb and celebrity. And I guess also he, he is perfectly willing to be uh, uh, leg show famous uh, and appear in a Victoria right. leg show. Yes. <laughs> you know the awful thought I had during that when I talked to the editor who also the editor of like Boob World or whatever else? It's like, I miss print media. I, I, miss, I miss niche publications, you know? <laughs> it was, yes, in some ways, the culture was better off when we had... Anyway, when we had jugs, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Anyway, carry on. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I you know, I, that scene, I, I've, been th- I've been thinking about it, Genevieve, since you mentioned it, because it reminded me a little bit that um, there's, within a lot of cartoonists, there's this kind of, um, and comedians as well, and, and I think probably in celebrity TV chefs like Anthony Bourdain, this, um, this kind of wrestling between, well, what I'm doing is not really that important. I'm just, I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm making little cartoons. It's not a big deal. And yet, at the same time, you also, they also feel like, why am I not being more recognized for my amazing mm. cartoons? Yeah. So, you know, I, I mean, Charles Schultz had that. Charles Schultz used to constantly kind of like, in interviews, he would say, oh, they say that Peanuts is this and that, but it's just a little cute cartoon I draw. It's no big deal. But at the same time, he would also say in the same interviews, and by the way, by the way, my books sell a million copies and they really should be, you know, placed more prominently in the bookstore because they're really big sellers. <laughs> so, you know, it's, 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 it, it, you know, these people who are, have sort of a, 
a level of pop culture fame that is not at you know a movie star level, mm-hmm. but they're they're the best at what they do within their own business. I think oftentimes have that that push and pull between um, this business is really not that important to begin with, but at the same time, I'm the best at it. Why don't people recognize that? I mean, they do have in common these two: plenty of vanity and narcissism that's uh, you know on display, and uh, and it becomes something that they, and they do need that they they do need and kind of soak in those moments as uh genevieve says in that scene in crumb he's happy to hear uh praise of of his work one of the interesting distinctions here that would be another kind of connection is is the fact that uh we're dealing with a living subject in crumb and a a dead subject in bourdain and and of course that is going to affect the way a portrait is going to work right yeah, also yeah. A, a very recently dead subject in Bourdain. And I, I feel like maybe Roadrunner is... <laughs> this is a, a different can of worms that I don't want to open, necessarily want to open on this podcast. But like, did this documentary need to happen right now? Mm-hmm. I, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I don't know. But like all of the subjects interviewed in this film are still processing of of major loss in their life. Not that they could ever have, you know, a a remove from the person they're talking about. But um, maybe again, particularly in that that final third, when they're talking about his, uh, his final days, like, you know, there's, there's some very fresh wounds in the mix there that are maybe that's maybe driving the narrative in a way that uh, it wouldn't if this were 10 years down the road. Yeah, I mean, we, we all know how long it takes to make movies. So he, this had to have been in the works almost from the moment mm-hmm. he died, mm. not, not long after, um, in, in order to get those interviews in the can and get the editing done and, and, and all of that. I am curious, you know, we talked about, you know, whether, whether Crumb saw Crumb and, and, and how he felt about it. Um, what do you guys think Anthony Bourdain would have thought of Roadrunner? <laughs> he would have oh, hated it, yeah. right? I mean, he surely, he, he definitely would have hated it, right? Bourdain, I, I can't speculate about <laughs> about someone else's uh, reactions. Is not is not with us. He would have wanted he wanted he would have wanted somebody other than Morgan Neville to direct his <laughs> film about him. <laughs> Morgan Neville's probably the, like the last person on earth yeah. he would want to make a, a movie about Bourdain. He, he, Neville Neville is, is is fine, but he's like he's about as uncool a, a, a filmmaker as there is. I think uh, I think Morgan Spurlock. I can, I was I was <laughs> literally just going to say when this movie <laughs> first so came good. out. <laughs> no no but no but when this movie. Uh, like was first coming out and it just like kind of passed through my field of vision and I didn't fully process. I was like, Margaret Spurlock did that? That's going to be weird. They, they, so. they were both enthusiasts about food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah, so this is, uh, we could say, we could say with some confidence that, that this is a better film than Morgan Spurlock would have made. <laughs> um, so now I'm, see, now, now I'm, now I'm thinking about like who would have made a good Bourdain film. Who, who's out there that they could have like put something together that was going to be great that Bourdain would have liked? You know, I I, I haven't seen uh, his his Sparks documentary, but just like the way I'm hearing people talk about it, maybe Edgar Wright would have, yeah. would have you know, he would have had a, I think, a point of view and a filmmaking sensibility uh, uh, that... And the pop culture now. I mean, they yeah. both, they're, they, there'd be yeah. so much crossover. Of course, he's British, so I don't know how much interest he would have in a... <laughs> American television personality, but as much as I like right in the end that film, I think it also would have dealt with every single episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <TV>. That's right. 
I, but the, I, the, I think that, um, I mean, it's obviously a, a nice, you know, an advantage if you have a living and willing subject. I mean, that, you know, it, it, it's such a, it's a, you know, the challenge for Neville that I think he does semi successfully is, is try to put as much of Bourdain's voice as possible in the movie, allow that to determine, you know, where he ends up going with the film. Uh, and that's as good as you can do with somebody who's actually not present. And it's why I'm a little more forgiving of the AI thing than others. But, you know, having 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 a living subject and having access to, uh, you know, being able to see the relationships that Crumb has with his brothers. I mean, that's that enriches the film and, and makes it. I, I would not, it, but yeah, but at the same time, I would not say that Crumb was an easier film to make than than Roadrunner. It feels it feels it feels very much more earned yeah. um, as a portrait than Roadrunner. Yeah, I mean, sort of a interesting contrast. Another contrast point within this contrast point is that even though Anthony Bourdain is dead now, he spent untold hours more uh, in front of a camera and talking to a camera than Crumb ever ever has. You know, like mm. he he is someone who de- you know developed an on screen persona, and Crumb very clearly does not have any sort of uh, on screen persona here. And also, just like the idea of access is different here you know like Zweigoff was filming his friend you know and he he had a a type of access that no one else would and in Roadrunner you know his partners his creative partners were you know heavily involved with this and Neville had access to untold hours of footage and raw material to work with so it's sort of like two sides of the same coin no that's that's not quite the, <laughs> the the right idiom but you see what i'm getting at here right for sure another thing these films have in, in common is the issue of mental illness keith what do you what do you uh, have to say about that i think there's a contrast here in in that it feels like roadrunner tries to solve the question of mm. bourdain's mental illness or at least has a lot of voices weighing in with what they feel it explains his mental illness where with crumb you get three brothers who grew up in the same circumstances which sound incredibly trying and traumatic but we're only really told about in fairly fairly vague details and you get three different reactions to the same situation and there's no really sort of sense of of, of cause and effect there beyond having a traumatic childhood or why they each dealt with it in their divergent ways. I mean, I think Robert obviously diverged the most in the sense that he's, he's able to function in the world and not, you know, not made a victim of anyone, uh, which is not the true, not true of his, his brothers, but, but, you know, I, I think that that's just it. I, I do think it's part of why crumb is a richer film is it doesn't necessarily provide and try to provide answers where roadrunner has voice after voice to try and explain Anthony Bourdain and why he did what he did. Yeah. It's a, it's a more of a take on yeah. Bourdain. I yeah. think there's a little, there's a more of an, there's an openness to crumb. I think a, a more of a generosity, in terms of to extended to the audience to try to um, you know sort out the minds of these very complicated and troubled characters where you know which is perhaps not true of Roadrunner I think we've kind of danced around the uh, the issue of of consent in Crumb and you know mm. um, and 
I get why. Like, I don't particularly want to like dive into litigating whether it is appropriate for uh, Zweigoff to include uh, his brothers in, in the film this way. That said, I think maybe it is our duty as viewers, as consumers of this film to kind of consider like, what we get out of you know the these scenes and if i don't know if it's if it's worth it <laughs> I, I, I guess um i think i think that it, you know this is not an answer to your question but I, but it, it definitely is one of the ways i responded to this film much differently now than i did at the time which was i didn't even think about consent and i was probably wasn't you know as conscious of these things i thought this was amazing footage amazing interviews fascinating characters Mm-hmm. Without even thinking about, you know, can these guys really say, you, you turn the, you know, it's okay to turn the camera on and, and let me talk about myself. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, I guess in some, some ways I'm still processing that because it's a film I, I know quite well, but I never thought of it from that angle. Yeah. I mean, the, the context of that era, too, is the context of um, outsider art mm. uh, and outsider music, many of which is made by people that looking back later on were also clearly mentally ill. Daniel Johnston being, uh, you know, that's the one. Yeah. 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 I also thought about him. I also thought about American movie a couple times Mm -hmm. during, during this too. Uh, I don't think we are being uh, invited or expected to laugh at these figures in, in crumb the way I think uh, in, in American, that criticism was leveled at, at American movie. But I, I am very disquieted by the extent to which we see Robert laughing at his brother in the film. I, I, I brought that up before. And I, I do think that can be like chalked up to like a nervous tick, but it is pretty, it was very upsetting to me to see his brother, you know, kind of, struggling on camera uh telling these kind of horrible stories and watching robert laugh at it you know i don't know i i I don't know if i would have had that same reaction at at the time you know in the in the cultural context of the of the mid 90s but i certainly had it now (laughs) (laughs) yeah in terms of consent are we saying that the brothers were not capable of consent? I think that's the question. That's the argument. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Because it can't be like, because to me, if that's not the argument, I mean, you know, I think we do end up with two people who are perfectly fine talking to the camera, who do share quite a bit, who are not uncomfortable, I don't think, being there. I think I, I remember I guess, that, that early scene where he asks to bring cameras to film yeah, I do, his I do brother and they say no. So, like, something happened. I think it's actually his mother them. saying no yeah. for them. And that, that is addressed in the, the audio commentary where it's basically they, with some persuasion, her mother was, uh, their, their mother was actually quite enthusiastic about mm-hmm. being on camera. Or so, this, you know, Swagos. Uh, explanation of it uh goes i mean i guess i guess the question is who determines whether or not they can give consent and and i don't have an answer for that well then you also think about you know motivation like why why did why did robert crumb allow this to why did he want this to happen he had a choice to say i don't Mm -hmm. want i don't want to be filmed (laughs) you know i don't want my family to be filmed uh uh, but he thought that this was um he had some motivation to want to 
participate and I guess to help, I assume, in convincing his brothers to participate. Because I, I don't know if, you know, Zwy, I don't, Zwygoff is certainly not doing it on his own. Yeah. A lot of things to, to, <laughs> to wrestle with. Um, difficult can, subjects, difficult movies. I'm sure. anticipating a, a lot of feedback from this one. I'm looking forward to it. Crumb is uh, available for rent on most of the usual services, but uh, you should probably pick up the Criterion DVD and Blu-ray with its commentaries and, and extras. Uh, Roadrunner is looking like the first indie hit of 2021s and can be found at an art house near you. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time for your next picture show, where we catch each other up on films or film-related items that you may want to seek out, too. Genevieve, what in the film world has been good for you? Oh, I mean, I've seen some things in the film world, but nothing that I really uh, feel like like talking about. So I'm going to uh, do a television show, but one <laughs> that has a, a direct uh, relationship to the uh, subject of, our, uh, of the second film in this pairing. It came out uh, last year on Hulu, and it is called Taste the Nation with Padma Lakshmi. Um, it is a, a food tourism series, but it strikes me as a, a sort of a descendant of uh, no, no Reservations in, in particular. Scott, you talked about uh, Anthony Bourdain being like uh, one of America's great export greatest exports, mm-hmm. and Taste the Nation is very focused on uh, America's culinary imports, and it's uh, sort of the thesis of the show is that you know, American food has been shaped by immigrants to this country over the the centuries, really, and going all the way back to uh, the country's native populations, which also get a, a spotlight episode here. So every episode is kind of devoted to a cuisine, an Americanized cuisine that has uh, roots in an uh, immigrant population that uh, is sort of connected to a, a particular place in the United States. So the, the first episode is uh, burritos at the border and uh, it's in El Paso and it's about Mexican food. And it's kind of talking to, you know, restaurant owners and just citizens who, you know, kind of are ingrained in this culinary culture. The Milwaukee episode is about a uh, German food and culture. Um, just San Francisco is about like Chinese immigrants since kind of the advent of Americanized Chinese food. Um, there's a really great episode uh, called the Gullah Way, focus on South Carolina and Gullah Geechee food, which is, uh, or Gullah Geechee culture, which is something I knew shamefully little about before um, watching Taste the Nation. And Padma Lakshmi, I like, I think we all, we all know her from, from Top Chef. She, mm-hmm. you know, uh, interacted with, with Bourdain a few times, but she's a really, great host here and you can you know obviously very different from Bourdain in, in in a lot of ways but you know you can just feel the people on screen falling in love with her and she is such just a good you know as a, a child of immigrants herself has a you know a deep connection to these stories and the people who are telling them and I think it's a, a really special food series if that is uh, even remotely your bag and if you're interested in anthony bourdain presumably it is so um it's on hulu uh the first season came out last summer and i believe there is a second season on the way which i am very much looking forward to yeah i, I love uh, food shows and um 
Padma was a, a, a significantly better host than than <laughs> Katie Joel. I think was the first uh, was it the first season or the or first and second? Oh gosh, yeah, yeah, yeah. not not, not uh, a bit of an upgrade there. And she, yeah, she's terrific and and has that same spirit. And it's good to see that that kind of perspective on world cuisine did not end with Bourdain. That there are many people on television who take that kind of same have that same curiosity and passion and uh, make good TV out of it. Yeah, very much so. Uh, Noel, what about you? What's been good for you? Um, I, I want a second taste the nation, which I have seen and is also oh, a, a favorite of mine. Uh, I have a TV show as well. It's coming to Amazon at the end of the month, July 30th. It's a three part series. It is uh, written and directed by Emily Mortimer, an oh. adaptation of Nancy Mitford's novel, the pursuit of love, mm-hmm. which is about the whole bright young things era in great Britain between the wars when, um, a lot of people were trying to, a lot of young women were still going through the old courtship rituals of the Jane Austen era, but were also going to university and trying to engage with the world more and dealing with the patriarchy. Um, it's very cinematic. It reminds me a lot of Wes Anderson and it's uh, the way it's composed um, and Sofia Coppola. There's kind of a new wave soundtrack that runs through it, even though it's set in the, in the 20s and 30s. Uh, it stars Lily James and Emily Beecham and uh, together the three parts are about the length of a you know prestige feature drama mm-hmm. film. So I'm going to say it's a movie, even though it's actually three <laughs> three TV episodes. So I, the pursuit of love. I definitely toyed with recommending a, a TV series that is six half hour episodes, with the justification of it's the length of a movie. So I yeah. uh, I, I definitely support that logic. <laughs> we, we're we're here to enrage TV critics by yeah. by claiming <laughs> claiming things for film. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's on Amazon uh, July 30th. That's when it debuts. Scott? Yeah, so I, I was uh, on Hulu. I was looking for some th- uh, things to watch for this uh, double feature thing I do for the, the Times. And, and um, I f- came across the, f- the, the film uh, Cheap Thrills, uh, which was made, I think, in 2014. It's an indie horror film, uh, indie horror comedy that I really liked a lot at the time. And I watched, I kind of started watching it again and, and got immediately hooked by it. This is a film. It's directed by E.L. Katz. It stars uh, Pat Healy as a guy. I mean, this is established really quickly in the in the, in the film, which I which I love. How it's very it's eighty five minutes long, and there's just not an ounce of fat on it. He works as a auto mechanic. He's uh, um, about to get evicted. He has a he has a wife and a child. He's about forty five hundred bucks short of where he needs to be, and uh, he's being he he goes to to. Uh, ask his boss for a raise and, and before he can do that he's told that they don't need him any longer he's laid off and so rather than go home he goes to a bar tries to drink his troubles away and ends up encountering an old high school buddy and the two of them that guy's played by ethan henry and the two of them encou- uh, uh, come into contact with someone else at the bar played by david keckner who's just a rich guy he's just he's a kind of and he's david keckner so he's very gregarious and and what ends up happening is that he starts to offer them money to basically carry out dares and those dares escalate. And so it starts with like whoever drinks their shot of tequila first gets 50 bucks. Okay. Um, that, that happens. And then if you can get this woman at the bar to slap you in the face, you get $200 for that. Right. And so it, that's, you can see where this is going. And so as the evening wears on the, challenges the challenges grow more extreme you know and the two friends the their relationship starts to fray and uh you know it it just becomes this sort of desperate increasingly 
gory, tense, and often extremely funny uh, horror comedy. Uh, I, I think it's just a blast. It's 85 minutes long. If you have a taste for exploitation films, films that are a little bit on the edgier side, it's worth watching. And I love Pat Healy as an actor. He's just he's just he's got a certain lightness to him uh, that kind of helps carry this film along. So uh, does anyone see it? Is it just me? You yeah, no, I, saw, I think I saw it with you. Yeah. At the music box. It was, uh, it was really good. Yeah. Cause yeah, I was the, the director and I think Pat, Healy, Healy was there. Healy too. was there too. Yeah. I did, did a Q and a with them, but uh, I think it's, I think it's fun. Me too. Cheap, cheap thrills. Keith, uh, how about you? Cheap thrills is another uh, unintentional uh, connection to Chrome too. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's yeah. just the title, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm going to recommend uh, Cherry Zwigoff's first movie, which is called Louis Bluey, which is um, it has an interesting story behind it. Basically, as is Crumb, uh, Zwigoff uh, is a collector of old 78s, uh, you know, ragtime, early, early, you know, blues, early jazz, and other uh, old timey music. And he wanted to write, this is 1979, he wanted to write a, a story about a, a rare 78 that he owned called State Street Rag, which is apparently one of the rarer 78s in the world. And he was going to write it for a, a magazine called Old Time Music, which is very like small, especially publication. And he assumed that one of the musicians on it, he assumed that there's one named Louis Bluey, who he didn't recognize, but he was a string player. Uh, and he assumed he was he was dead, but he actually was able to track him down, still alive in Chicago, uh, still performing and f- and full of stories. So, you know, he spent, uh, Zweigoff spent his life savings and like five years of his life making this film. And it's only an hour long, but it's it's uh, it's all good. It's, it's really, it's a Packed, entertaining, and uh, uh, you know, music filled, music and story filled celebration of uh, someone who had, had might have otherwise fallen through the cracks. Um, uh, the the musician's name was Howard Armstrong, and and he was able to have kind of a uh, a second career, um, not necessarily because of this film. Although this film helped, I'm sure, but but uh, uh, as part of sort of a revival and interest in in this sort of music in the 70s. And uh, he um, lived for he lived until the age of 94, apparently. Performing music until the until the end of his life, as well. Uh, it's it's um, available to rent uh, through the usual streaming services. It is also on Criterion. Mm-hmm. And if you want another connection, it has it has a wonderful, uh, wonderful, and not at all distasteful R. Crumb uh, <laughs> cover <laughs> to accompany it. Yeah, if you like the style of Crumb, but wish it was about somebody who wasn't quite so uh, problematic as they <laughs> yeah. say, uh, Louis Bluey could be for you. One quick fun fact about Louis Bluey: When I interviewed Terry Zweigoff, I asked him about. You know, that film being 55 minutes long, I think it is, about the length of a PBS block back in the days when it would, when documentary filmmakers, the best they could hope for was to be on PBS. Mm-hmm. And I asked him about that and um, if that was the reason why the film was that length. And he said, no, actually, I'd never, I'd never made a film before. I didn't know how long they were. And someone told me they were about an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and he said, if he had to do it over again, he, you know, it would be an hour and 20 minutes. So, Oh, I love it. And that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will drop August 10th and August 17th. Genevieve, what do we have on tap? Director David Lowry is about to become the most discussed director on our podcast, topping other frequent creators like Martin Scorsese. But we can't help it. His new film, The Green Knight, based on one of the legends of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, looks like one of this year's most unusual and compelling films. It was previously planned as a 2020 release before COVID delays, so anticipation has been high for this one for a long time now. The movie stars Deb Patel as a knight Gawain and focuses on his quest to face a knight who may be a supernatural force. 
For a pairing, we're looking back to another story built around symbolic heroes' quests in the Arthurian order, John Borman's 1981 fantasy Excalibur about the rise and fall of the Round Table. We're heading deep into the mists of legend next time as we see what these two Arthurian fables, made 40 years apart, have to say to each other. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Crumb, Roadrunner, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve. I am the TV editor at vulture.com and you can find my Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Noel, how about you? Um, I'm writing mostly these days for the LA Times and the New York Times. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Noel Mew, N-O-E-L-M-U. Keith, how about you? Um, I'm a freelance writer. I, I write for a bunch of different publications, a lot a lot these days for GQ, a little bit for The Ringer, um, a little, you know, sort of Vulture, TV Guide. Uh, I'm kind of all over the place. It's, it's fun. I like it. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at kphips3000. Scott, how about you? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find my work at the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, the, the Ringer, The Guardian, uh, Vulture, and other fine publications. I'm also the editor of Oscilloscope's Musings blog our absent co-host tasha robinson can be found on twitter at tasha robinson she's a film and tv editor at polygon you can stay updated on the next picture show by visiting nextpictureshow.net and via twitter at next picture pod you can also contribute to our patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash next picture show if you haven't subscribed to the show on apple podcasts already please consider it please also consider rating and reviewing us which will help others find your favorite movie podcast Thanks to Dan the Baked Jakes, who's right in front of me, for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. I'm